0: I want you to have the end in mind as we begin. Because if we only talk about Advent, if we only talk about the shepherds, if we only talk about the nativity, you will miss the end of the story. When my wife Angie and I lived in New Brunswick, Canada, um, it was not unusual on a Sunday afternoon after church, we would get in the car and just drive. Um, We would drive at times just to get lost because it was so fun to get lost, because then you could get found. When you're in New Brunswick, Canada, around every corner, it's an adventure. There were times you go around a corner, there would be moose crossing the road, maybe a bear, who knows what. It was an adventure, we loved getting lost. Have you noticed how you can't get lost in Indiana? (laughs) Every single road is straight, and you can see from here to Ohio if you're looking east, or here to Illinois if you're looking west. It's impossible to get lost in Indiana. This morning, I don't want you to simply get lost in the nativity. I want you to have the end of the story in mind. That was true for Jesus when he came to earth. He knew exactly why he came. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, the first words that Jesus shares is this. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom is coming. Repent and believe the gospel. The end result is the transformation of all people. In chapter 1, verse 38, you hear these words. And very early in the morning, Jesus got up and went out to a remote place and began to pray. And as he was praying, his disciples came looking for him. And they said, everyone is seeking after you. You might think that's a good thing if you're the Messiah. But if you go through the Gospel of Mark, you will see that the word seek is used ten times. And every time it's used, it's talking about people only wanting their self-serving needs met. The reason they're coming to Jesus is because he can feed them if they're hungry. He can heal them if they are sick. He can give them money if they are poor. They want him for what he can do, not for who he is. And so Jesus changes the agenda because he has the end in mind. He said, let us leave this place and go to other villages where I can preach because that is why I have come out. And preaching is not just something that I am doing. Preaching is much more deep in theological meaning than that. It is the declaration of the good news that those in chains can be set free. Those that are, 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 are in captivity to the evil one will be loosed. The first miracle that Jesus does, as reported in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 is an exorcism. It is his declaration that my coming is to destroy the work of the evil one. As he is in the synagogue, one who is demon-possessed comes up to him and says, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come out to destroy us? Quite a rhetorical question, with the answer being yes. I want you to have the end in mind this morning. Advent, the celebration of Advent, does the very same thing for us. As we go through this series, you need to realize that the first Sunday in Advent, two weeks ago, does not celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's actually a remembrance of the fact that the second coming is on its way. You begin the the church calendar with the end in mind. So not only does Jesus understand the end, but the Christian church should understand the end. So this morning, what I want you to do is yes, we will go through the nativity and we will do so from the perspective of heaven, not earth. Because sometimes we get caught up and what's going on in our lives. And our perspective is limited by what we can see and feel and touch and taste. This morning, I want you to see earth from heaven's perspective. Thus, we begin with Job and go to Revelation. Job chapter 1 and 2 are almost a behind-the-scenes, behind-the-veil um, insight. You have, as readers, That Job does not have. Job is much easier to read and understand if you understand this dialogue taking place between Satan, Satan. We often use that like it's his name. But it's not his name. It's his role or function. The Hebrew word Satan means accuser. So it's not just his name. It's who he is. And what he does, it's a reflection of the character of his heart. You might think, for example, that the fall took place in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve ate the apple and then passed it on to to Adam and he equally ate. That's not the fall. The fall did not begin on earth. The fall began in heaven when Satan decided he wanted to take the throne and usurp that from God Almighty himself, that's the beginning of the fall. The fall has almost eternal consequences to it. We just are living in the end results of the fall. It was Satan's fall first before it became ours. He is standing before God after his whirlwind tour of the earth. God sees his son, Job, and calls him blameless. And Satan, to God's face, that's only because you protect him. You take away your protection. He will be just like me. That's the role of Satan. He stands in heaven accusing not just Job. but He has the same thing with Jesus himself. Satan comes and accuses Jesus, if you are the son of God, he's questioning the very character and mission of Jesus himself, just like he does you, just like he does me. I know you hear his voice just like you do mine. There are days, aren't there, where you feel utterly worthless and it's because a hint has been placed into your ear canal that then connects to your brain and comes down to your heart. You're not really who you say you are. The accuser speaks today just as profoundly as he did in Job's day. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 12? I am a, a teacher, not a preacher. So I'm just going to walk you through the text. But here's something that I believe deeply. The text can speak as profoundly as I can. So I'm going to ask you to listen carefully to what the text says, because this is God's word for us today. And then I, John the Revelator, I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. Now, I don't want to underplay that, but this is hugely significant Most of us are chronological readers as we read through the text. We actually think the beginning is always the beginning, the middle is the middle, and the end is the end. In the book of Revelation, this is the climactic event that changes everything. So it's right smack dab in the middle. It's more like a a sphere that is turning in on itself right into the middle. So Revelation chapter 12 is a great significant event. I saw a woman clothed with the sun. If you read through a number of commentaries about Revelation chapter 12, you will find a disagreement of opinion on who this woman is. Some will say, this is clearly John the Revelator talking about the nation of Israel. If you will, God's firstborn son that is being spoken of as the woman. Um... And equally, you will find people arguing, this is, not, this is not the nation of Israel, Old Testament. This is the woman Mary, New Testament. And the answer is, yes, it is both. It is the Old Testament prophecies of Israel on who they were. They will carry forward all the promises of the covenant made from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, on down to today. And also they are being fulfilled in the woman Mary as she is conceived by the Holy Spirit and will now give birth to the child Jesus. With the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, she was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains. Can you hear Genesis chapter 3 here? The curse of Eve Listening and doubting God is then that in great pain she will bring forth children. This is both the redemption story and the curse all intertwined. That's why it's called a great significance. And then I, John, once again, verse three, I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. With seven crowns on his head, his tail swept away one-third of the stars of the sky, and he threw them to the earth. This is prophetic language from the Old Testament being used by John here to show the significance. This is both Ezekiel and Isaiah language. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. Not only can you hear this message from heaven, you can also hear the words of Herod the king as he wants to destroy the Christ child. Herod sees the Christ child as the usurper that's coming to take his crown. On the other hand, Daniel chapter 7 tells us very clearly one like the Son of Man will ultimately give him all kingdom, all power and authority on heaven and in earth. And she gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. Stop. All nations with an iron rod. I would imagine if we took a poll today um, and said, What is your favorite psalm from the book of Psalms? The majority of you would say Psalm 23. It, great psalm, no criticism. Would you be surprised to know that the New Testament never quotes Psalm 23? The most quoted psalm in the Old Testament is Psalm 2, which talks about the one like the Son of Man that will take on the kingship of Yahweh himself. And it actually, in the middle section, it actually says this, he will rule with an iron scepter. John is telling us this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, the most important Old Testament psalm. That's what's going on here. She gave birth to this son, and her child was snatched up away from the dragon. Uh, I don't know about you, my my biblical expertise is in the gospels. So whenever there's a fallback plan, I fall back to the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in this case, Revelation says he was born and he was snatched up. Isn't the part in the middle pretty significant? Yes, it is. But in the ancient world, if you talk about the way somebody's life begins, this quite unusual birth, and you talk about the end snatched up, which is a clear reference to the ascension, speaking Old Testament-wise from the beginning and the end, is talking about everything. You are to have everything in mind that you know about Jesus from that phrase She gave birth, and he was snatched up. And now he stands. Listen to me very carefully. He stands at the right hand of God Almighty. This is the greatest good news there is. The significant event is that now the accuser, the one who accuses us night and day before the Father, Satan, He has been hurled down out of heaven and no longer has access to the throne. And now Jesus, the Son of God, stands at the right hand of God, interceding for you, Romans 8, Hebrews 7, interceding for you night and day. Very often when we talk about the birth, the life, the death of Jesus, We think about, he has forgiven me of my sins. And you, of course, would be right, but only partially right. As a matter of fact, if you only talk about Jesus forgiving you of your sins, you really are somewhat of a self-centered person. You are making all the work of Jesus about you. God has much more in mind than just that. He has in mind the total restoration of the way things were in the beginning. He does deeply care about you, but he has a lot more in mind as well. I find it interesting that God did not just simply cast Satan out of heaven immediately. I mean, that's what I would do, personally. If Satan was there um, maliciously maligning my children, if you were at my table and you were criticizing my children, I would graciously walk to the door, open it up, and usher you out. You see, God is a righteous God. And Satan is actually accusing us, listen to me carefully, rightfully. We are who he says we are. Listen to these words from the book of Genesis, and I could have chosen any number of passages. I just thought I would begin at the beginning since I really have the end in mind. Satan comes... Genesis chapter 3, and whispers words to create doubt into the ears of Eve. Did God really say? And she acted upon that doubt, creating sin. She passes the fruit to Adam. He eats and acts upon that doubt. And the very first thing they do is run and hide from the presence of God. But God called out to Adam, Adam, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, so I hid. Have you ever thought about the conversation that then followed up between Satan and God? what a loser he is afraid of you then in genesis chapter 4 the story of Cain and Abel while they were in the field Cain attacked his brother his brother Abel and he killed him then the lord said to Cain where is your brother Abel am i my brother's keeper Can you imagine the conversation after that? Satan and God. Wow. What a great brother-brother relationship that is. Listen to chapter 6. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all of the time. The Lord grieved. I have people regularly coming to my office talking to me about the brokenness of their hearts. And they always talking about Jesus understanding their hurts. But it seems to me that this understanding of both Job and Revelation tells us that God the Father himself has unbelievable empathy for us as well. This is not just about Jesus. This is about you understanding who God the Father is. He grieves in his heart for our brokenness. And how patient he is that he listened to that incessant accuser day and night about the failure of his creation. Can you sense the brokenness, not just of earth, but heaven? I think you have a false picture of heaven, hear me carefully, before Jesus. Before Jesus... There was accusatory language, night and day, going on in heaven. Can you imagine what that was like? To have, if you will, this uh, editor, this reporter of the heaven news coming before the Father every single second saying, let me tell you name after name after name after name after name of all of the people on earth that were acting according to our sin. That's what heaven was like. I think you have an unrealistic picture of what heaven was like. I'm not sure I wanted to be in the throne room to hear that kind of conversation. But then... But then, something unbelievable happened. Jesus is born, Advent. He lives. We see his character. We see his mission. We know what the end result is. The end result is not just him living a different life. The end result is that actually heaven will be utterly transformed by his presence. So he lives. He dies. He rises he ascends, he takes the place that is rightfully his and casts out the accuser. Now, there is bad news in that. The bad news is is that the accuser is now loose on earth. Can I use the vernacular and you won't be offended? Satan is mad as hell and he's coming after us. That's the bad news. The good news. Now Jesus, 24-7, stands at the right hand of the Father. And and Romans 8, Hebrews 7 says he is interceding for us night and day. Can I tell you what he is saying? Because we don't know it from the book of Revelation. We do know it from John chapter 17. Jesus' last prayer extended prayer on earth. Here's what he's praying. Father, I pray that they, us, would be one as you and I are one. He wants us to be just like him. In life, and in language. Can I say that again? He wants us to be just like him in life and in language. The language before Jesus got to heaven reminds me of what the last year has been in terms of the news cycle any of you watch like Fox News as we're moving towards the election? That reminds me of exactly what heaven was like before Jesus got there. People shouting at one another, literally cursing at one another, tearing each other down moment by moment by moment. Could you imagine listening to Fox News every second of every day for the rest of eternity? That's What heaven was like. And then Jesus gets to heaven. And he stands at the right hand of the Father. And he speaks your name and your name and your name into the Father's ear. Do you see my son? Do you see my daughter? I love them, Father. I beg you, send the Holy Spirit. Protect them from the evil one and give them language like ours that they may share with the person right next to them. The problem is, in the church, we can sound more like Fox News than we do like the intercessory language of Jesus. We try to correct each other verbally. We accuse others in their absence. What a shameful behavior for the church that we actually act like heaven before Jesus than heaven after Jesus. As Jesus was on the road to Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, he asked his disciples, who who do people say that I am? Peter. Peter always speaks first, always. Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say one of the prophets. Good answer. Only problem is that before that, a man by the name of King Herod has said exactly the same thing. Peter does not sound like Jesus. Peter sounds like King Herod, who, my friends, is a representative of Satan on earth. Who do you sound like? But what about you, Peter? Who do you say? You're the Messiah, which is a good answer, only partially right. Because Peter's understanding of the Messiah is this. You will now take on the power that is even more power than the Romans, and you will destroy the Romans, and you will then take a place of earthly power right here in Jerusalem. Listen to Jesus' response to Peter. He says this, get behind me, Satan, because you do not have in mind the things of, the, of God, the conversation, the intercessory conversation between Jesus and the Father. You do not have in mind the things of heaven. Instead, you are thinking just like human beings. So may I give you the call to the church today. Stop it. Stop thinking and sounding like heaven before the fall. I call the church today to sound like the conversation between Jesus and the Father, who are calling for corporate unity and love and utter devotion. Am I making sense? This is a mystery of the church. And the word mystery does not mean something that's inconceivable. The word mystery is very clear in the New Testament. The word musterion just simply means it's a mystery until you have been told, until it's revealed. Then it's no longer a mystery. We as the church need to sound and act just like the conversation taking place between Jesus and the Father. We need to stop sounding like the accuser who is calling people out. We need to love and share and give and care and be compassionate and gracious. And I promise you, that language is utterly Transformational. May I give you a personal illustration? I uh, I was not a good son as I was growing up at all, and my dad continually pointed out to me that I was not a good son, and so we had this wonderful relationship back and forth. I'd love to tell you it was this kind. It wasn't. It was this kind. Until I was 17 years old, and my father and I had a knockdown, drag out fight, and I left the house. And then something happened. Um, a woman by the name of Angie, my wife, introduced me to a man named Jesus, and it changed everything. I tried as hard as I could to show that change to my father. I'm not the loser you thought I was but I could not get through. Um, a lot of my life changed. I mean, th- this sounds terrible to be the dean of a seminary, and I'm gonna say this out loud, and it's really stupid for me to say this, but one of the reasons my dad saw me was a failure as a failure was because I actually flunked out of college twice before I met Jesus. And so he was right. I was a failure. But then Jesus came and began to change things. And at times I would take my new um, report card, for lack of a better term, and I would show it to my dad Dad, do you see what I'm doing now with Jesus? Look at at these grades. And he would say, You can do better. I don't know what that does to you, but it would begin, it just crushed my soul. Um, as I progressed in terms of my professional career, as I got promotions, I would tell him, Dad, do you know what other people think of me? Look, look, look what they've said to me. You could have done that faster. Yes, sir. I heard the voice of the adversary again and again saying, you are that failure, That's who you are. A year and a half ago, Angie and I moved down from New Brunswick, Canada, back here. Um, I will tell you that part of the reason is because my two granddaughters are a five-minute walk from the church. So that's one of the reasons. But the other reason is because my dad's health was failing. And I needed to come back to care for him. It's a 24-hour drive from New Brunswick to here. Angie drove one of our cars down to visit her mom and dad in West Virginia, and I came straight to to Columbus, Ohio, where he lived, to see him. I walked into his room after a 24-hour drive. He was living in an assisted care place because he really was um, on the last legs of his life. I hoped for some change of the relationship. But I walked in, here are the first words he said to me. What are you doing here? What does a son say to a father when he's driven 24 hours and you're just kind of pushed away? And I said this, I came to see you, Dad. And something happened inside him. Um, I'd love to tell you it was physical, but it wasn't. He said, you shouldn't be here. Your granddaughters are just around the corner. What are you doing here with me rather than with them? Something was going on in the room that I couldn't quite figure out. And then... He looked at me like he said this a hundred times. David, when was the last time I told you I was proud of you? Uh, I wanted to say, Old man, you've never said that, and I've done everything I could to try to get it. I didn't say that, because the language was changing from heaven before Jesus to heaven after Jesus. I said, Dad, it's been a while. And he said, Son, you just need to know, as a father, I could not be more pleased with you. You have absolute, maybe you do, maybe you do know how powerful an effect that had on my life. I mean, at that moment, For 60 years, I was looking for my father's approval. And he finally spoke it. And I heard the words of my heavenly father that said this, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Friends, it is the call of the church to sound like the intercessory language of the son speaking to the father. We need to say that again and again and again. And if you are embarrassed with gushy language, get over it and start using it. Allow people to know that you love and you care for them and you will do anything for them. Speak words of hope. This is Advent. Speak words of hope. It will change their eternal destiny so they no longer hear the accusatory words of Satan. But instead, you embody the words of Jesus himself when you say to somebody, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. And last time I checked, we are all brothers and sisters, am I right? And if that's the case... We need to use loving family language again and again. And if I can say it this way, if you feel like talking like Satan, um, stop it. I don't care how you feel. I want you to mimic the language of heaven. Because the prayer of Jesus is this, Father... I pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you ready for it?